Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Welcome, listener. Now, I'm glad you're here. Now, I wanted to add an extra disclaimer to this episode, because I feel our general disclaimer was not adequate enough for the subject at hand. Today, we'll be dealing with a sensitive topic, and before we get into the story, I want to take a minute to address any issues with the episode before they arise. The murder of Brandon Tina thrust the trans community into the forefront of public discussion. Before the early 1990s, transgender people were a silent minority within society. In the case we'll be discussing had originally received national coverage, the disregard of preferred pronouns and dead naming were not considered offensive, and some of the audio clips, legal transcripts, and direct quotes used in creating this episode may reflect that. This episode will include unedited audio of a police interview with a rape victim, which may be too distressing for some of our listeners. If you don't think you can handle hearing any of those things, then it would be best advised to turn back now. Trust me, you won't hurt my feelings. Otherwise, let's get on with it. The first time Brandon Tina was born was on December 10th, 1972. Back then, he was known as Tina Renee Brandon, and it was an identity that he aligned himself with throughout childhood and into late adolescence. Like most teenagers, Brandon, then known as Tina, struggled with depression, anxiety, finding his place in the world. Most of all, he struggled with some of the feelings he had been having about his gender, but a twist of fate would change all of that. One day, a girl called Brandon's home. The girl told Brandon that she was calling because she had heard from a friend that a really hot-sounding guy lived there. Brandon was taken back, but when the girl asked for his name, he decided to play along. He introduced himself as Billy, and after some time talking to the girl on the other line, he managed to land his first date. Brandon agreed to meet the girl at the skating rink with a group of friends. For the first time, he attempted to conceal his breasts by binding them with ace bandage, pulled on his best pair of khakis, and made sure his white sneakers were clean for the occasion. He wanted to impress the girl, and by all accounts, he would. The couple dated for a short while before it came out that Brandon's name wasn't Billy. The girl had seen his driver's license, the name Tina Brandon, had been typed on it. Brandon lied and told her, Tina's an Irish name. I actually go by Brandon. I was just kidding when I told you my name was Billy. For the girl Brandon was seeing, his word was enough. After all, it was just like him. Brandon had a reputation as a class clown, always playing pranks and making up elaborate stories. It was part of his charm 
and before long, Brandon would be staying with the girl at her mother's house. Brandon's mother and sister, however, were concerned about Brandon's behavior and the new relationship he was in. After his family revealed the truth to the girl and her mother, Brandon's relationship would come to a grinding halt. In January of 1992, Brandon's best friend Sarah convinced him to go grab a bite to eat with her at Hardy's restaurant. Instead, Sarah drove Brandon to Lincoln General Hospital using previous suicide threats as a cause to have him admitted. After three days of observation, Brandon was free to go. However, the doctors would determine that Brandon was experiencing a sexual identity crisis. Speaking with a psychologist about the issues he had been having was the push Brandon needed to realize that maybe he wasn't so strange after all. Ditching the name Tina and now only calling himself Brandon, he found that new doors were opening up for him. Shedding the burden that comes with living the life in a body of a sex he didn't identify as, Brandon began to come out of his shell. Rumor had it that he was a huge hit with the ladies. Teenage girls all over Lincoln, Nebraska were talking about this cute guy named Brandon who was a great kisser and often showered them with lavish gifts. He really knew how to make a girl feel special, but in spite of his reputation, his relationships were often fleeting lasting a few days or a few weeks. When the girls he began dating learned that Brandon had once been Tina, they usually wanted nothing to do with him at best, and at worst, began to harass or taunt him by calling him homosexual slurs. Though Brandon fully intended to get the operation necessary for his external genitalia to match the sex he identified with, being completely truthful about his situation was one that was difficult for him. Often, when the girls he had been dating found out that Brandon was transgender, he opted to tell them that he had been born a hermaphrodite and that he had been undergoing a series of operations to have the female parts of his anatomy removed. This may have only made the situation more confusing for the other teenagers he had been involved with at the time. 
Life as Brandon may have made Brandon Tina more comfortable in his own skin, but it certainly came with its own share of heartache and trouble. Brandon had been caught forging checks all around Lincoln, primarily to pay for all the presents he was giving to friends and girlfriends. Being sent to jail would mean that his legal name and sex listed on the license would be published in the local papers. The cat hadn't already been out of the bag before, it certainly was now. After working so hard to shed his former identity, Brandon began to feel heat as girls he had dated became laughingstocks for being fooled by Brandon about his biological sex. He quickly realized that if he wanted to fully become Brandon, he would have to flee Lincoln. Getting expelled from school just weeks before graduation, after he was caught lifting another student's leather jacket, would finally seal the deal. In November of 1993, Brandon would say goodbye to Lincoln for good and travel south to Fall City, Nebraska. There, Brandon believed he would be able to get a fresh start and shake the past that had only haunted him back in Lincoln. Leaving the city for a small town like Fall City, however, would only put Brandon in the path of additional danger he hadn't anticipated. In 1993, LGBT rights were a hot-button political issue. Throughout the country, state legislators were re-evaluating sodomy laws and, in Washington, Bill Clinton had laid the foundation for LGBT members of the armed forces to serve their country, with a stipulation that they had to keep their sexual orientation a secret. This controversial compromise in public policy would become to be known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The issue is not whether there should be homosexuals in the military. Everyone concedes that there are. The issue is whether men and women who can and have served with real distinction should be excluded from military service solely on the basis of their status. And I believe they should not. Being anything other than straight and not conforming to expected gender roles wasn't only seen as immoral in the eyes of many people back then. Many places was also highly illegal, though most major cities began adopting more progressive attitudes and policies to protect LGBT community. Small-town America found it hard to keep up with the changing social fabric and instead chose to outright reject it. False City would be no exception and could be described as ground zero for homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. In spite of the area's attitudes, Brandon was able to land a new girlfriend named Lena Tisdale, and it would be through her that Brandon would find a new group of friends that included John Lauder, as well as Tom Nissen. He hoped that the move to Falls City would mean a fresh start, without worry of running into old classmates who still insisted on calling him Tina or anyone knowing of his transition. Brandon would soon learn that running from the past isn't as easy as he thought, and within weeks, the problems that haunted him back in Lincoln would return. Brandon was arrested on December 15, 1993, for forging checks and questions begun to arise over his biological sex. After Brandon had spent just a little over a week in the Fall City Jail, Lena's father would send her a blank check that Lena was supposed to use to get a perm. Instead, on December 22, 1993, Lena 
took the check to the local grocery store, and had it cashed for enough money to bond Brandon out. But there were a few problems. Lena was not old enough to make Brandon's bond by herself, so she had her friend Tom Nissen pick him up. As it would turn out, Brandon's homecoming was not warmly received. The entire town was talking about Brandon being housed in the women's holding block while in jail, and Lena's mother did not agree to her daughter being in the relationship. Brandon found himself in a heated confrontation with Linda's mother, Linda, shortly after Lena bonded him out. Linda demanded that Brandon remove his pants to reveal his genitals. Brandon was not at all comfortable with these demands, as I imagine anyone would be regardless of whether or not they happened to be transgender. Reluctantly, Brandon pulled down his pants enough that Linda could see his pubic hair, but he refused to pull them down any further. Lena stood by Brandon's side, telling him she didn't care, and if he said he was a biological male, then she believed him. Linda and Brandon continued to argue, with Linda pushing Brandon into a dresser. The fallout with Linda would be the least of his troubles. On Christmas Eve, 1993, during a party hosted at Tom Nissen's house, tensions with the group came to a head, and Tom began arguing with Brandon. Nissen grabbed Brandon while John Lauder grabbed his pants and pulled them down. After Nissen and Lauder physically and sexually abused Brandon at the party, Lena and Brandon left and went to a nearby hotel where they phoned some other friends to pick Brandon up. Before Brandon's friends had a chance to arrive, Nissen and Lauder tracked down the couple and told Lena that her mom had called and that she wanted Lena to come home to talk to her. Brandon told Lena to go and that he would be alright. After Lena had left, Lauder and Nissen pulled Brandon into the bathroom where they proceeded to beat him before forcing him into Lauder's Crown Victoria. The three drove around, eventually getting the car stuck in a ditch that ran along some of the rural roads. Lauder, who had only been wearing a windbreaker, said Brandon repeatedly offered his jacket as they attempted to pull the car out of the ditch they were stuck in. Nissen and Lauder attempted to conceal Brandon in the back seat of the car when a farmer came along to help pull them out. The trio then continued driving until Nissen pulled the car into a vacant lot behind a Hormel pig buying station where Nissen and Lauder proceeded to beat and rape Brandon in the car. I went first, then John and I it just sort of happened. I'd never done it before. I don't know that it was more of an ego thing. I felt like I'd been fucked. Me and Brandon had a long conversation that evening in the bathroom. I told him, I don't have anything against you. 
If you had just been straight with me, I would have understood. Brandon started to feed me another line about he was going to have a sex operation. John was really upset with the whole situation. Maybe he still wished he was going out with Lena. Brandon would go to the police about the rape and assault by John Lauder and Tom Nissen. However, as you are about to hear, even they showed little sympathy for him. Tom held your arms. Which way was he standing? Beside you, behind you, or what? How did he hold you? And then he took in Tom and uh, John under your pants, right? He pulled your pants down how far? Past your knees. How far did he pull your underpants down? What did you have in your underpants? Nothing in your underpants? Well, you talking about earlier, I had a sock. No, I didn't. You didn't have a sock. Do you run around once in a while with a sock and your pants make you look like a boy? Yeah. All right, so after you pulled your pants down, I seen you as a girl. What did he do? Did he ponder you any? Yeah. He didn't ponder you any, huh? Doesn't that kind of amaze you? After he you pulled your pants down, you been wanting to take you to bed and you told him no, that you was a boy and he couldn't do that? Doesn't that kind of get your attention somehow that he would have put his hands in your pants and play with you a little bit? Huh? I don't want to. I can't believe that if he pulled your pants down and you're a female that he didn't stick his hands in you. Or your finger in you. I can't believe he didn't. How was your position in the back seat? On my back. He was on your back. What did he try to start the end first half? I was He tried sitting your butt down. And you say you've never had sex before, is that correct? Right. And which one tried to do this first? Tom. And Tom couldn't get it in you? Huh? I couldn't get it in Alright. He said he couldn't get you? I couldn't get it in. Well, I know it hurts. I can not tell you. Where are you going? The first one was Tom. Is that correct? Yes, Then Tom got out and what did he do? Then what happened? And then when John got the vaccine, what did he do? Alright. After he got his pants down, he got spread of you, or had you spread out, he got a spread of you then. Then what happened? Well, let's back up here for a second. First of all, you didn't say anything about him getting it up. Did he have a heart on when he got back there or what? I don't know. I didn't look. He didn't look. Did he take a little time working it up or what? Did you work it up for him? No, I didn't. You didn't work it up for him? No. Then do you think he had it worked up on his own or what? I guess no, I don't know. And you've never had any sex before? No. How old are you? 21. And if you're 21, you think you'd have, you'd have trouble getting in? Did they do it one time to you, and then the other guy do one time and quit? Or did one guy do it, and then the other guy do it, and then the other guy come back and do it again, and the other guy come back and do it again? They each did it once. You want to file charges against these guys? Yes. You want to sign a complaint against them? Yes. Will you testify in court against them? Yes, Why do you run around with girls instead of guys being you're a girl yourself? Why do you make girls think you're a guy? I don't know if I have idea. You go around kissing the other girls? What? I don't know about me. The ones, the girls that don't know about you think you're a guy. Do you kiss them? 
Because I'm trying to get some answers so I know exactly what's going on. Now, you want to answer that question for me or not? Huh? The only thing is, if it goes to court, that answer's gonna, that question's going to come up in court. And I'm going to want an answer for it before it goes to court. See what I'm saying? Because I have a sexual identity crisis. You're what? I have a sexual identity crisis. Explain it. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask... Did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Lauder would later explain why he and Nissen decided to attack Brandon that night. On second thought, who cares what this piece of garbage thinks? Brandon's decision to report what happened between himself, Tom Nissen, and John Lauder only seemed to make the two men even angrier. Lauder and Nissen were determined to get their revenge and see to it that they never saw their day in court. Less than a week later, on New Year's Eve, Brandon had made his way out of Falls City and decided to lay low with some friends in Humboldt. Nissen, armed with a knife, and Lauder, armed with a gun, went to Lena's house that night in an attempt to find Brandon. Lena's mother told them that Brandon was out in Humboldt at a little farmhouse staying with his friends Lisa and Lambert and Philip Devine. Nissen and Lauder claimed they were going to go over there and scare him a bit. However, what happened that night escalated into a triple homicide case. When Nissen and Lauder arrived at the farmhouse, they found Lisa Lambert in bed with her baby. 
At the foot of the bed, Brandon was hiding under a blanket. Brandon was shot twice by Lauder and repeatedly stabbed by Nissen before Lauder turned the gun on Lisa Lambert. Lisa's baby, who had been in her arms when Lauder shot her, began to cry. Nissen took the baby out of Lisa's arms and placed the child back into his crib with a bottle while Lauder shot Lisa a second time. Philip Devine, who had been in another room, heard the commotion and tried to negotiate, but it was already too late. Lauder then shot Philip. The bodies would be found by police several hours later when Lisa failed to show up for work. Lauder and Nissen were immediately considered suspects in the case and were arrested that afternoon. Lauder was charged with murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault. Nissen was charged with murder, kidnapping, and aiding and abetting the assault. Nissen is currently serving a life sentence. As for Lauder, who Nissen agreed to testify against in order to avoid the death penalty, he is currently sitting on death row. Neither men were ever charged with raping Brandon Tina. Joanne Brandon would later sue Richardson County and Sheriff Locks, who had interviewed Brandon about his rape, for failing to prevent Brandon's murder. And subsequently, she ended up in the uh, hands of a man by the name of Charles Locks, who was the sheriff of Richardson County, Nebraska. Right. And she told the sheriff what happened. She told the sheriff what happened. Basically, he didn't believe her. He treated her disrespectfully. And he didn't do what he should have done, is gone out and arrested the men that had assaulted Tina, right? Well, actually, he knew these guys. He yeah. knew they were ex-cons, and he knew they were violent. Yeah. And he saw this girl had been beaten up. Sure, that's exactly what he should have, what he should have done. Mm -hmm. And because he didn't do that, it allowed them to learn of the fact that she had reported this rape and this assault. Well, he called them in. Yeah. And uh, they murdered her. In 1999, she would be awarded $80,000 for mental suffering, plus... $6,223 for funeral costs. In 2001, Miss Brandon would receive an additional $12,000, which included $5,000 for wrongful death and $7,000 for intentional infliction of emotional distress. As we approach the 25-year anniversary of the murders of Brandon Tina, Lisa Lambert, and Philip Devine, it's important to reflect on how far we've come as a society and how this case marked a pivotal moment for transgendered individuals. Though, there is so much work to do when it comes to LGBTQIA rights. This case served as a launch point and gave a voice to people in society who previously had none. As we go into 2019, let's make it the year where we can finally say, never again will someone be murdered because of their preferred pronouns. And that's this week's episode. You know, I've been really frustrated by something lately. There's a few big-name podcasters out there that rail on and on about keyboard warriors and online criticism. But when you really think about it, when you think about when things started to change, when people just living their lives were able to live it how they wanted, it took some of those keyboards. And some of these big-name podcasters in the true crime community have come out and tried to quiet these people. And what I say is this, you have a voice, whether it's through a microphone or a keyboard. Anyone that rails on and on about keyboard warriors and social justice warriors, they're hypocrites. 
especially if they're in the podcasting community. Because you know what they did? They went out and they bought an expensive microphone, and they babble on into it with their quote-unquote deep platitudes. When these people say these things, I want you to take a moment and look at what they have compared to the people that don't have anything and don't even share the same rights as them. It's easy to dismiss the rights of others. It's an easy thing to do, especially if you have yours. And I don't even think that what I'm saying is controversial. But podcasting is still this strange space where we don't hold certain people accountable for their statements. But with time, that will pass. That's what I want you to know. No matter who you are, no matter what your sexual orientation is, no matter what your political affiliation is, you're welcome to listen. You're free to write us. You're free to write me. I won't shut you out. And I won't criticize your right to use your voice, whether it's through keyboard or microphone or just out on the street to make a difference. And I think that about wraps things up. Thank you again for listening and keep the fire burning. Obscura, a true crime podcast, is released every Wednesday. Subscribe if you'd like to continue hearing quality content.